Now be honest, whatever stage you are in life, young or old, all right, as a show of hands, how many of us still like to play video games, okay? A few of us, all right, now I recognize if we were across the hall in collision, the team service this morning, that answer would be a little bit different, but, uh, but still, I don't know if you have followed any of the stories in the last couple months about people selling video games for significant amount of money. But in January, there was a guy who found an old Nintendo game and sold it on eBay for $13,000, okay? Which you can imagine sent a lot of people to their attics and basements looking for money. And of course, made me sorry that my mother sold my Nintendo for like $10 at a garage sale in high school, which I probably went and spent on candy. But uh, don't worry, I went ahead and sent her a bill for the other twelve grand this week. All right, so we'll get this taken care of. But... Um, But uh, anyway, so there was a guy named Dave in Kansas who had seen this story, and he went digging in his basement uh, for his video game collection. What he found was a game called Stadium Events, and if you've never heard of that game, then uh, don't feel badly about that. There weren't a lot of people. Uh, After this game came out, Nintendo bought the rights, and so they they thought that basically some, that they destroyed almost all but about 200 of them, maybe only 20 copies of this game actually still exist today. Well, this guy named Dave in Kansas finds a shrink-wrapped copy of this game, gets on eBay and sells it for $41,000, $41,300. Now, they asked him, what are you going to do with this money that you now have that you weren't expecting? Um, And I don't know if you're ever embarrassed sometimes when you watch uh, sporting events like the Super Bowl or things, and, you know, they put a microphone in somebody's face, and they say, hey, you just won, or you just did this, or you just won all this money. Um, what are you going to do next? And, and the first thing that comes out of their mouth is something selfish or profane or whatever, and I'm embarrassed to have my kids around me. Um, but they asked this Dave guy, what are you going to do with the money? And he said this, after taxes and tithing, the rest of our part will be going to a retirement account that was decimated by the dot-com boom and 9-11 and recent market problems. He said, not very sexy, but needed. Uh, and then he said he's also going to auction off the rest of his Nintendo stuff. Now, now I love this, that, that here he is, you know, with some, uh, some amount, some small amount of national recognition. The first thing he says is, I'm, I'm not going to hide it from the government. I'm going to do my responsibility. And because of my relationship with God, I'm going to give a portion of it back to him, okay? Which is incredible. But don't miss the irony here. Here's a guy who's going to make wise financial decisions with money, with $40,000 that was given to him by someone who is going to take this video game and never play it. You know, this video game is just going to sit in their basement in its original shrink wrap. We are a culture of consumption, are we not? Okay, we are a culture that likes to possess and consume and get more and more and more. We're going to be in James 5 today, all right? The, the first verse of James 5, if you have a Bible from the chair in front of you, that's page 856. We'll be in James 5 today. And last week, you know, I told you that, uh, that, that James is probably my favorite book of the entire Bible. And there were some tough words that were in the section we read last week uh, in James 4. But I have to be honest with you, uh, the words we're about to read today are the harshest words in the entire book of James, all right? Uh, so here's kind of where we're headed with this. If you want to be a follower of God, if you want to be a follower of God, then your desire to love must outweigh your desire to possess. If you want to be a follower of God, your desire to love must outweigh your desire to possess. All right, James 5, we'll start at verse 1. Here's what James says. Now listen, you rich people. 
weep and wail because of the misery that is coming upon you. Now, if this is your first week at Windsor Road, welcome, right? Um, We're so very glad that you're here. We are a place of love and grace and open arms, and uh, we welcome you with such kind language. Um, He continues on. He says, uh, well, now you understand why I asked them to give me a funny video clip and a cute song to butter you up a little bit before I had to read these words, right? Uh, Pretty soon I'll be playing my trip out of the country, but... um, He says, your wealth is rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workmen who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves on the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered innocent men who are not opposing you. Now, one of the things I hope you catch in here as you hear these words, all right, note that all these verbs are past tense, okay? This isn't a warning. This is an indictment, all right? This isn't a message for James to his audience of a turn or burn kind of nature. This is pretty much just burn, all right? This isn't a message where he's giving them a warning. He's saying, it's already done, You know, I almost feel like if we were going to be true to this text, we would just now pray and you could go home and wait for God's judgment, right? You know, we could just kind of call it quits for a Sunday morning. What I want you to understand is while I believe that these words apply to us and the way we live our lives, they were very specifically meant for a certain audience that James was writing to. He was writing to wealthy landovers in the first century. Okay, and if you own land in the first century, you didn't go down to the John Deere dealership down the street and, and pick up the best trailer or the best tractor that you could afford and use that to, uh, to work in your fields. If you were a, a landowner, you worked the fields by hand. And if you were wealthy, then you were fortunate enough to work the fields by someone else's hand. Okay, but fields were always worked by hand. So in the first century, wealth came at the expense of another person. So here's the question. How different is that today? Okay, now you may say, I I haven't lied or I haven't cheated or stolen anybody. I might say, well, do you want a cookie? You know, like, do do you want a reward for not doing awful things to somebody else? All right? You say, I've worked hard. I've made sacrifices to get where I am today. But the question is, on some level, don't our choices for for affluence— now, I don't mean taking care of our needs and some of our wants, but our choices for affluence today, on some level, don't our choices to live in affluence require that somebody else doesn't get to? Don't our choices to live with all the things that we have mean that other people have to go without some of those very same things? Now you say to me, Jason, are are you really trying to say that money is evil? And I would say, no, I'm not trying to say money is evil. I think your heart is. Okay? Or I think, (laughs) I think our hearts are. Okay? Is that a little better? Sorry, I just wanted to see that look on your faces. I think that deep inside... Our lust for stuff limits our ability to love. I think that deep down inside, our desire to have and possess and consume prevents us from having the relationships that God has intended for us to have with other people and with himself. 1 Timothy 6.10 says this, that, that money, that the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. 
right? It's not the money itself. Money is neutral. Money is just a tool. It's our love for it and our desire to put money above other things in our lives that gets in the way for us. Now, you don't believe me. Look at how we live. Okay, and I'll pick, on, I'll pick on my family right now. We'll let you off the hook for a minute, okay? So in my family, we are blessed beyond anything that we deserved or could have imagined in life. We have a beautiful house that we love very much. And our family has four people in it. And our house has four bedrooms in it. Okay? We have four different bedrooms for four people. And somehow I still don't end up uh, with my own room. But, you know, whatever. Um, <laughs> no, two of us share a room and then we have these two little preschool age princesses who have decided that they want to share a room. So really, two bedrooms get used on a regular basis in our house. We have a whole room in our house. And the only occupant of that room is a big, long wooden table. Okay, we have a whole room in our house that's just dedicated to a dining room table. And that's all that's in there. And we spend most of our time eating our meals in the kitchen. Okay, maybe some of you are like this. And we do, we justify with the best of them, okay? We say, well, you know, we have a beautiful house, but, but we don't have a basement that we could finish off. And other people have, you know, a basement. Or, or we know that we wouldn't have been able to afford the house we live in if it, didn't, if it didn't run right up next to the interstate. You know, so we have this house because of the interstate discount. Or we say true things. We say uh, things like, you know, we've used this house to host so many events for the church. And during the summer, believe it or not, we have like 30 high school students that are in our house every Wednesday night for 242, okay? It's just absolute craziness, and we might not have been able to do that uh, if we had lived in another house. But please understand this, okay? Two things about our affluence. The first is the only thing that outweighs our ability to consume is our ability to justify. The only thing that outweighs our ability to want more stuff is our ability to write off that desire for more stuff. Secondly, serving God with your excess does not justify it. Just because you say, I use this thing for God, doesn't make it okay for us to live the ways that we do sometimes. Think about this example. What if you found out that, I, um, that a huge portion of our home budget um, went for me to have a limousine and a driver? Okay, so pretty much everywhere I go, you know, I've got the guy in the little hat showing up, taking me places and stuff like that, okay? And you come to me and you say, Jason, okay, you live on a youth minister's salary. Maybe this isn't the best use of your finances to have a limo and a driver. And I say, I say no, 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 you don't understand. See, on Sunday mornings when I'm busy at church working and stuff like that, um, I have him go and pick up other people who might not have a ride to church. So you see, because I use my stuff for God one day a week, it justifies me having all of this excess. All right, you would think that I was crazy, wouldn't you? Okay, but we all do the same thing. We look at the guy down the street and say, well, his boat is twice as big as my boat, so clearly he is living a life of excess. And what we do is we spend our time looking down the street and we miss the needs that exist in our world. I think we miss a lot of the needs that exist in our community just because maybe we don't see them in our neighborhood. Now, we probably all say the same thing at this point. We say, but I'm not rich, okay, so this doesn't apply to me, all right? Well, funny you should mention that. Um, If you go to a website called zipskinny.com, 
Uh, ZipSkinny has uh, information, demographics, all kinds of different things about your zip code. And I think it'll be updated here in the next year or so. So I think it's all based off the census in 2000. But if you go to ZipSkinny.com, you will find that the median household income in 61822, the median household income is $60,349 in our area, okay? $60,349, that's the median income in our area. Now, if you take that number, you go over to a website called globalrichlist.com, which is a website Randy shared with us a couple years ago. You plug that in, you will find that that puts us at the top 0.91 percentile in the world. Okay, so look at, you know, you can barely even see us, but all the way over here, the very last little guy on the end is red, and that's where we sit, living better than more than 99% of the world. And they have some interesting statistics. They say uh, for $8, you could buy 15 organic apples here, or you could plant 25 fruit trees in Honduras. For $30, you could buy the ER DVD box set, or you could get a first aid kit that would go to a village in Haiti. For $73, you could buy a cell phone or a mobile AIDS clinic in Uganda. And this one I thought was just startling. For $2,400, you can buy an HD TV or schooling for an entire generation in Angola. It puts in perspective, doesn't it? Okay, and to clarify, here's what I want you to understand, all right? I I think that God has given you the blessings he's given you in life for a reason, all right? Don't hear me wrong. Don't hear me saying that I hate capitalism or anything like that. What I think James calls us to is balance in lives, in our lives. Recognizing how much God has given us and how much we could do for others who don't have as much as we do. So with all that in mind, let's hear James' words again, all right? Starting uh, chapter 5, verse 1. Now listen, you rich people weep and wail because of the misery that is coming upon you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded and their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Okay, in the first century world, there are basically three signs of wealth, okay? Um, one would be uh, harvested grain. So many people in the first century would live day to day. Whatever food they could find that day or purchase that day, that's what their family would eat. But if you were wealthy, you were able to stockpile food. Sound familiar? All right. You were able to stockpile food and have more so that, so that you could, if you had a day where you didn't have a lot, you could go to that stockpile. And James says, listen, that food is going to rot eventually. And what kind of situation would you find yourself in if you had stockpiled food and it rots before anybody is able to eat it? The second thing is rich clothing. And he says, listen, there's going to come a day where the moths will eat your rich clothing and it will not look quite as nice as it did at one point. So harvest grain, rich clothing, and precious metals or jewels. And certainly gold and silver we know don't rust, but what James' point is, is that if you take it and hide it away, its value is essentially already lost. If we just take our things and we pull them in closer to us, the value of those things is already gone. Now we can probably assume that James remembered his brother Jesus teaching in Matthew 6, where he said, don't store it for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, but store it for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy, where thieves don't break in and steal. Okay, James is saying if we put our security in anything other than our relationship with God, eventually it will lose its value. If our security is found in anything other than our relationship with God, then eventually it's not going to be worth as much as we wish it were. 
This is also interesting in, in uh, verse 3 when he says, their corrosion will testify against you. Gold and silver corrode, their corrosion will testify. The word that's translated there, corrosion, is the same word back in chapter 3, verse 8, when Randy talked about taming the tongue and, and how basically that our tongue is full of poison in the ways we use it. That's the same word there when James wrote his letter. All right? Ask yourself that question. Does my stuff poison me? I mean, does, do my, my wealth and my material things, do they poison my heart? Do they poison my attitude about other people in my life? Well, he continues on in verse 4. He says this, Look, the wages you failed to pay the workmen who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. Now, this doesn't come through very well in our English translation, but the language he uses here is basically military language. So maybe a good illustration for us would be to think of like a Lord of the Rings type of movie or something where you've got, where you've got God and an army of angels on one side of the battlefield. You know, and God's riding in on a white horse with these angels, and they are literally waging war against the wealthy on behalf of the poor. And I ask you, which side of that battle do you want to be on? Okay, the poor in James's day bore the brunt of unbelievable taxation. There were things like their temple tax, their Roman tribute, special taxes from time to time, and then Herod was said to have these endless building programs. In fact, a first century historian, Josephus, said that, that Herod's building programs literally bled the country dry. It's not an exaggeration to say that the poor in James' day, not the wealthy, but the poor may have lived with as much as 40% tax rate. Okay, think about that. And what James says is he calls out those who take advantage or those who cheat the poor, either by hurting them, by doing something that hurts, or by standing by and doing nothing. And then verse 5, he says, You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves on a day of slaughter. That's kind of a play on words where he says, Imagine we were going to have a big feast. You know, and, and the, the centerpiece of the whole feast would be this fattened animal. And, and, and there you are while we're waiting for this animal that's been plumped up. And you sit in the corner just eating away and fattening yourself up. Okay, I think James forces us in these verses to answer two questions. The first is, How's your heart? Okay? How is your heart? Now, I know that churches get grief for talking about money. And if this is your first week with us, I apologize for playing into that stereotype. But we ask questions all the time about this kind of thing. What does God want from me? What's God's standard? What does God expect? And I think that the minute we ask those questions, we have already missed the boat. See, we say, well, okay, God expects 10%. Well, that's an Old Testament number, not a New Testament idea. In the New Testament, God wants your whole heart. He wants all of you, not just 10%. And, and, and I think that 10% is a great place for us to start. But as soon as we ask, what is it that God expects from me? What is it that he wants? We've already missed the boat because what we're essentially asking for is, what's the minimum standard that I can get by with? How little can I do and get God off my back? So if I give 10% of my money and I go to church a couple times a month, God, will you give me a free pass to heaven and we'll just call it a deal? How's your heart? See, I think that money is just a symptom of a much larger issue in our lives. And it's a heart issue. 
And I recognize if, if generous people stopped giving, then Windsor Road would have to close its doors. Okay? And if Elizabeth and I stopped giving, there would be some compassion girls in India that would have a much harder time with life. But don't miss this truth. God does not need your money. God needs your heart. And if God has your heart, the rest of it will follow. See, we are a culture of possession. And I think a lot of times this has very little to do with money. I bet that many of us have been in relationships sometime along the way where we felt that one person in the relationship was literally all about possession and trying to own us. Or maybe some of us, if we admit, we're, we're kind of closet control freaks, right? And we just want the people around us to do what we want and to do it the way we want them to do it. And if that happens, then everybody is fine. Nobody gets hurt, right? Or maybe for some of us, knowledge can be this. I mean, there's nothing wrong with the certificates we put on the wall and the extra letters behind our names. But if we're not careful, that stuff can become another act of worship for us. Is your heart open to the needs that you see around you? There's an old adage many of us have probably heard. Some love things and use people. Others love people and use things. And only one is a godly way to live. If you want to be a follower of God, your desire to love must outweigh your desire to possess. Okay, there's another question that I think James forces us to answer. Uh, how's your heart and how's your life? Okay, don't forget the words that we closed out our section with last week. In, verse, in chapter 4, verse 17, James says, Anyone who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it sins. So do you treat people fairly? I mean, the people that you work with day in and day out, do you treat them fairly? How about the people who work for you? Are you fair to them? Or maybe this one will get us all. How about the people above you? I mean, are you fair in your relationship with your boss? And are you fair with the things you say about your boss? Maybe people we go to school with, people that we're in projects with, or all kinds of different things. How about your, how about your neighbor in the yard behind yours? Are you fair in the way you treat your neighbor? Are you fair with the guy behind the counter at Taco Bell? Okay, I had a, a really good friend of mine in college. Taco Bell was like our place to go, okay? And, uh, and we would go to Taco Bell, and inevitably they would get his order wrong. And I always knew what was coming, because they would get his order wrong, and then he would march his way up to the counter and throw a fit. Like, excuse me, you know, and, and on and on and on. And you've seen this kind of thing, okay? And I used to say to him, Todd, 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 could please, you know, sit down, understand something, the 17-year-old kid working minimum wage behind the counter at Taco Bell honestly doesn't care if he put tomatoes in your chalupa or not. I mean, really, that's not what's front and center on his mind right now. He doesn't really care all that much. Maybe it's time to get a grip. Do we treat people fairly in our lives? I read a story this week about a lady named Hetty Green. Uh, Hetty Green died in 1916. She was known as the Witch of Wall Street. Now, that'd be a great way to be known, right? You know, that's what I'm hoping at the end of my life, that people say, man, that Jason Weatherall, uh, he really was a jerk, but man, he was loaded. You know, I mean, nobody really wanted to be around him, but gosh, he was rich, and that was very cool, okay? So Hetty Green is known as the, the, the Witch of Wall Street, 
And there are some amazing stories about here. I mean, arguably, she was the most wealthy woman of her time and one of the most wealthy women who has ever lived. She divorced her husband because he spent too much money. She sent her daughter to live in a convent because the nuns would pay her expenses. Okay, her nine-year-old son, her nine-year-old son was in an accident and his leg got, uh, got hurt in the accident. She would only take him to the free clinics when somebody recognized who she was, she said, fine, we'll just take care of this at home. And her own nine-year-old son got gangrene in his leg and had to have it amputated because she refused to pay for doctors. Her office, basically she was surrounded by, uh, by suitcases that had all of her papers in because she didn't want to pay for any additional space. And there are even stories, that we don't know how much of this is true, there are stories that her diet consisted of like oatmeal and cold eggs and nuts and stuff like that. Um, because she refused to pay to heat her own food. So, Hetty Green, at the end of her life in 1916, died worth somewhere between 100 and $200 million in 1916 money. So something like $1.9 to $3.8 billion today. She died one of the richest women of her time and maybe one of the richest women in history. And we say, at what cost? I mean, was it really worth what it cost her to get to that point in life? And what James tells us is riches are worthless when it comes to salvation because you can't take it with you. One of the, one of the most impacting ways I've seen this, believe it or not, I was in uh, junior high and I was at Great America up at Gurney Mills. We were waiting for what felt like eight hours for the Batman ride or whatever. And, um, and, and we're going through, you know, all the turnstiles and everything. And, and I see this shirt, this black shirt with white lettering. And I just can't quite read what's on the shirt. And finally, you know, we're getting closer and closer. And I see this guy and I'm trying to figure out. I can tell it's a no fear shirt, which were, those were huge back then. And I can't quite figure out what it is that's on his shirt. And finally, I come face to face with it. And his shirt says, he who dies with the most toys still dies. And I remember for me, that was one of the first times I began to understand that principle that you can't take it with you. That it doesn't really matter how much you accumulate here. It's not moving on with you. There was a UN food, uh, food and agriculture study that was conducted in uh, last fall. And out of that study, they came up with this statistic. Okay, And this broke my heart. They said that some 40% of food that is prepared today never gets eaten. Okay, 40% of food that is produced today never gets consumed for whatever reason. I hope that breaks your heart for those who are in our community that need additional food and those around the world and we have so much and we waste. This is actually an area I've been really proud of our teenagers for setting an example. Uh, They went to the Illinois Christian Teen Convention a couple years ago and uh, were really inspired by a group called Bloodwater Mission. And Bloodwater Mission, um, they they dig wells in Africa in villages where people sometimes are walking miles and miles and miles without shoes and and trying to get water that's only somewhat clean. And so for $3,000, Bloodwater Mission can build a well in a village. And our teenagers who were at this conference came back and said, what can we do? You know, how can we do this? So we started talking about it. We talked about it in here in the main service. We talked about it in Collision a bunch. And people began donating money. And to date, our students, because of just the passion, the vision they caught for this, have built two and a half wells over in Africa just by catching a vision about what could be done in the world. 
Um, I had a group of students come to me, a group of young ladies, a couple months ago, and they said, you know, what, what can we do about this Haiti thing? We've been really figuring out, we've got an idea, we want to run it by you. Uh, they said, what if we do a babysitting night, and, and we just get a bunch of teenagers to volunteer to babysit, and parents come, bring their kids, and they just leave money with us, and we send that money somewhere in Haiti to make a difference. And they had that just a couple weeks ago, and these girls, it just started with some middle school girls who had an idea, raised over $600 to send to Haiti. It's just incredible, isn't it? Micah 6.8 says this, What is it that the Lord requires of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. If you want to be a follower of God, your desire to love must outweigh your desire to possess. I have to apologize. I shared this illustration a couple years ago, but it's been very meaningful on this subject for me, so I thought I would share it again. Um, But this is my iPod. And I've always considered an iPod a a necessary tool in youth ministry so that we know what kind of music is being played at our events and uh, and we can watch over things like that. Well, I also know my own personality, and I know my love for stuff at times. So when I first got, several years ago, when I first got an iPod for youth ministry, uh, I put an inscription on the back, a verse of Scripture, to kind of remind me that this is just a thing and, uh, and, and uh, and I shouldn't care about it more than I need to. Well, that iPod was dropped at events and camps and things like that, and over the course of of a year, actually busted. Um, And I was pretty upset about it, but I was trying to remember. So I I looked for a scripture that would even cut me to the heart just a little bit more. So on my next iPod, um, I put put Matthew 6.24. And Matthew 6.24 says, No one can serve two masters. You know, either love the one and hate the other, be devoted to one, despise the other. Uh, You can't serve both God and money. And uh, the very last event that we did before we moved back to Illinois was a a New Year's Eve lock-in. And over the course of the night, a high school kid at the lock-in stole my iPod. So you can imagine, once again, I wasn't very happy, but I was trying to remember the words on the back of this thing, to just remember that it's just a thing. So when I replaced that iPod, you can bet I scoured every page of my Bible for a verse that said, thieves will burn in hell, you know, like... (laughs) It's got to be in here somewhere, right? <laughs> Unfortunately, there wasn't one. But, um, but I put Matthew 6.24 on again because I thought I needed to be reminded of this again, clearly. Because I want to remember that at the end of, of it all, this is just a thing, and this thing will burn. And if I don't want to share its fate, then I better not have too tight of a grasp on it. There's uh, Monopoly money around you in your seats, and uh, we thought this would kind of tie the two weeks together. If you were here last week, I talked about my Monopoly addiction and whatever else, but um, what we want to do this morning is just to give you a little bit of time to reflect. Okay, we've talked about this idea that, that our desire to love needs to outweigh our desire to possess, and here's what we want you to think about, and you can spend some time writing if you want. This week, how could I make a sacrifice and then make someone else's life better. So maybe for you, it's skipping out on a little bit of Starbucks or, or not buying lunch a couple of days. Whatever it looks like for you, how can you make a sacrifice in your own life and then take that money and do something for someone else? Maybe there's somebody in your neighborhood that needs a painting project or something else done. Maybe there's a, a gift card that could be bought for a family to encourage them. I don't know, be creative. 
But how this week can your desire to love outweigh your desire to consume and possess? Let's pray. God, I thank you for the reminder that James gives us. God, that at the end of the day, it's just stuff. God, you have blessed us so richly. And certainly, what you need is not our guilt. God, guilt would be so easy because it's just a passing feeling, and then we can go out to lunch and forget about it. But God, convict us. Convict us to be intentional about making sacrifices so that we can be your hands and feet in this world and make a difference for you. God, you are incredible. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.